Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Breaking news out of Lebanon right now. Clashes between police and anti-government protesters in what is being called a week of rage. And of course, it comes as the country sinks deeper into an economic crisis. Lebanon is in turmoil. In October 2019, a quarter of the country's population took to the streets of the capital, Beirut, to protest the many failings of the government. Proposed increase in taxes, including a WhatsApp tax, triggered the protests, but underlying issues around corruption, migration, unemployment and a failure to provide basic services all bubbled to a head. The government resigned, and the decades of overborrowing finally caught up with the central bank. A default on a loan saw the Lebanese lira's long-standing peg with the US dollar start to slip. The resulting economic collapse led to inflation rising 500%. Those who could fled the country. Those that remain have been watching their life savings devalue by the day. A huge explosion in Beirut's port six months ago devastated the city centre. But with no money for reconstruction and no working government to orchestrate a clear-up operation, much of the city remains in ruins. The Covid pandemic and the lockdowns that follow it have hampered any chance of reigniting the economy. And a high-profile assassination that occurred during the making of this programme has left the city wondering if 31 years after the end of the last civil war, a new war is around the corner. In this episode, I speak to some of the people who are helping the citizens of Beirut to protect their finances and giving them access to much-needed foreign capital and those who are living in a city on the brink of collapse. I'm Tom Pattinson, and this is the Bitcoin Dealers of Beirut for Defiance. Lebanon is in the heart of the Middle East, and like many countries in the region, its history and geopolitical situation is incredibly complex. I asked my old friend and colleague, Richard Spencer, Middle East correspondent to the London Times and Beirut resident, to try to explain it to me. Essentially, there are three major sects in, in, in Lebanon. Uh, there's the Sunni Muslims, the Shia Muslims and the Christians. Now, when Lebanon was set up by the French uh, at the end of the First World War, as, as Britain and France carved up the old Ottoman Empire, uh, Lebanon was created as a Christian majority country. It was like, so Syria would be the Muslim majority country and Lebanon would be kind of France's little Christian ally in the Middle East. By 1975, the country fell into a 15-year-long civil war. The civil war essentially, I mean, it happened for lots of reasons. It happened, you know, it was triggered by the role of the Palestinian refugees here. But essentially, the civil war happened because the Christians no longer had a demographic majority. And therefore, they no longer had the um, authority, the, the you know, the uh, legitimacy, if you like, to inf- impose their will on, on a Muslim majority. So the, at the end of the civil war, 
it was all kind of reshifted around to be a tripartite system where instead of being, you know, Christians versus Muslim with the Christians on top, it was a tripartite system with the Sunni, the Shia and the Christians. And as, you know, the sectarian divides in the Middle East, again, this is incredibly simplistic, have, have realigned themselves over the last 30 or 40 years, you now effectively have the Sunnis on one side, the Shia on the other hand, and the Christians who are now in a minority uh, kind of as the balancing force. This tripartite system that was established as part of the peace deal technically still remains in place today. But the underlying issues between these vastly disparate sects that led to civil war still remains today. So what happened in Lebanon is, is actually a, is actually a uh, cautionary tale. It's, 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 it's a fascinating example of, of you know, how to successfully end a civil war um, but not deal with the causes that led to the civil war. So the civil war ended in 1990-91 with a, with a power-sharing agreement, which has kind of been the model for subsequent you know, peace deals and other civil wars, including in Northern Ireland, this idea of a power-sharing agreement where you know, no one side is allowed to win, where constitutional means are created to give each sect a, a, a stake in, in, in the government. So the Shia, the Sunni Muslims and the Christians who are the three main sects here. And even the minority sects, they were all given this kind of constitutional stake in power. They were all given different roles in government. And it meant that different sects had control of different ministries. And for a while, that kind of worked uh, because, you know, everyone had their place in society. Everyone knew what they were about. And the prime minister, who was a guy called Rafi Hariri, who emerged as the dominant Sunni politician after the civil war, uh, he was very close to Saudi Arabia, and that meant that he had lots of funding from the Gulf. He, uh, he was actually a businessman. He had businesses in the Gulf. And he used that to funnel money into reconstruction of Beirut, of, of all the places that have been trashed in the civil war. Um, so all this investment flooded in, and, you know, you had the appearance of a boom. You had this newly rebuilt city center in Beirut with fancy hotels. Uh, you know, all the people who had fled during the civil war came back bringing their skills. You know, the, all the people my age, actually, lots of my friends were, Lebanese friends were, you know, their parents took them, took them away in the civil war when they were kids. And then they came back with their, you know, degrees from, you know, Caltech and, and UCL and Imperial College in France and everywhere. And they, so there was this kind of boom, but they never sorted out the politics really in the sense that, you know, you still had this sectarian grip on politics and the sectarian parties just used this wealth uh, to fund themselves constantly. So they were constantly extracting from the economy. So what, what you had by 2019 was you know, a, an economy that had had huge amounts of investment, but wasn't really paying back. So you had a huge wealth divide appearing. And you also had a government that was, you know, doing what governments do, building new roads and hospitals and, you know, reinvesting in schools. But no one was paying their taxes because, you know, if the government said, come and pay your taxes, the various sects would just say, well, you know, come and get us. And they couldn't because the, they, the government was weak and the, the sectarian control was strong. So the government wasn't going to get any taxes to pay this. The debts carried on going up and the money wasn't circulating into the economy. So this fixed exchange rate, which underpinned everything, 
was not being backed by by anything. There was not being backed by exports. There were no exports. There was no taxes going into government coffers. So it was all. It, it became more and more of a bubble. And and the end result of this was this complete sort of division between the elites who had you know control of the money and control of government ministries. And in the case of Hezbollah, which became a kind of elite of its own, the sort of the dominant faction in the Shia community, which was they, they had also had weapons because they had refused to give up their weapons. So they they had a much greater control gradually over the security sphere. And then you had ordinary people who had no kind of say in the matter, and you know, and as the government ran out of money, so services started to fail. You know, rubbish wasn't collected. You know, the health service started to, you know, having built really good hospitals after the war. There's some really good hospitals here, but they started to, you know, the cracks started to show as the money started to run out. And and that's what sort of triggered these great protests in 2019. The, the sense that there was a financial crisis looming and the fact that half the population hadn't really got anything out of this boom. So I'm Ronnie Shatta. I, I host a podcast called The Beirut Banyan, which covers all things that impact modern Lebanon. Ronnie explains how October 2019 became a turning point for Lebanon. Widespread protests took place in Beirut that ultimately led to the downfall of the government. The key demand of October 2019, the October 17 uprising or the October 17 revolution, terminology aside, was uh, accountability, was uh, reform, and it was a domestic rallying cry. It is, in a way, if you will, a combining of previous protest movements uh, that, in a way, sort of put everything on the table. Uh, this includes the 2015 You Stink protests. These were a primarily Beirut affair, tackling the trash crisis that took over Beirut also anti-corruption. This also includes the older chance from 2005, which was talking about state issues, sovereignty, although they did not take the, they were not front and center to October 2019. They were in the background. But at the forefront was a call to fix the system and uh, in a way hold leaders to account. He says the tipping point was when the government announced a plan to tax the use of the free messaging service, WhatsApp. The streets of Lebanon have been jammed with protesters, the biggest anti-government demonstrations there for 15 years. These protests were triggered by talk of a new tax on WhatsApp. The, the tipping point was a, was a reckless decision, a WhatsApp tax that was floated. Uh, this is, I, I can't remember the exact date, it may have been October 14 or 15, not sure exactly which day. At a, at sort of a charge to use WhatsApp in Lebanon. That was the last straw. But this is after years of watching state institutions fail, uh, watching things become ungovernable. Add to that uh, forest fires that were burning what's left of the cedar trees of Lebanon. And uh, people sort of, they said enough. There was, a, there was a chant that emerged in the early days of the protest movement, which was, Kellon yani kellon which means all means all. And this was a shouting cry against the entire establishment. However, 18 months on since these protests, the country's government has effectively disbanded and none of the protesters' demands are being heard. 
there are two sides in the sense that there's the older, maybe well-established political parties leadership that are hell-bent on survival. And I think uh, they see that there's a, there's a problem that they're unable to effectively deal with. And that's largely economic. So that's the regime maybe trying to sort of preserve itself. On the other side, you have a protest movement that is still technically there, although it's not on the streets. It's at home. It's on social media. It's, uh, it's demands left unfulfilled. And that way it could be sort of described as a regime and what's left of the state against a protest movement. But even within on both sides, there's many, many multiple, there, there are many uh, players at stake. And for better or worse, the protest movement has remained, has remained for the large part a fluid movement. Ronnie explains that the issues that were not dealt with at the end of the civil war in 1990 are blowing up right now. This includes rampant corruption. On, I mean, in, in every sector, this includes uh, economic mistakes, mismanagement. This includes issues of, of sovereignty and sub-state weaponry and case in point Hezbollah. Uh, this includes every existential issue that matters to a country <laughs> trying to fend its way through a crisis. All of those things are visible at the moment. And add to that uh, the culmination of that horrible sort of, uh, that horrible structure, if you will. The political stagnation and economic chaos were compounded by the COVID pandemic, which left many of the poorest out of work, and ensuing lockdowns prohibited any jumpstart of the economy. Then, on August the 2nd, 2020, Beirut would suffer another terrifying blow. A massive explosion has torn through the Lebanese capital, Beirut, killing at least 70 people and injuring more than 3,700. It was a very hot day in uh, beginning of August. Uh, I'd been sitting on my balcony, which faces over the port. You can actually see, I don't know if you remember the, the photo of the explosion. There was this great, massive grain silo just next to the explosion site, which, which featured all the, the pictures. Now you can see that from my balcony, which, which uh, looks north over the sea, towards the sea and the port. And luckily for me, I just got too hot. And uh, so I went into my back room, which is... Um, you know, faces the opposite direction and is cooler. And, you know, I can shut the shutters, turn on the aircon. And I had an article to write. So I shut the shutters, turned the aircon on, hunkered down and uh, wrote my article. And that kind of saved me because about an hour later, there was this kind of really strange noise. And I kind of looked up and was look, looking over the shutters to see what was going on. And suddenly this massive, you know, roar. And I was kind of flung across the room right over the bed, it's also it doubles as a spare bedroom. I was literally thrown over the bed from my desk uh, through the door, which had blown out, luckily. So I kind of threw, landed in the doorway, which had been blown out. One of the windows actually landed with the, you know, the wooden surrounds of the window, just landed right next to me. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the other side of my flat, which has, you know, great big French windows looking at it's a very nice flat, looks like say great view and it has these nice french windows going out onto the onto the balcony and they were completely smashed you know the the i went into my living room there was just wood glass everywhere and the thing that was kind of freaky was that the um there were these blue streaks all over the wall where the blue shutters and uh, the bits of door had like been flung against the wall 
And uh, yeah, I mean, had, I mean, had no idea what had happened completely. I mean, I assumed it'd been a bomb. Everyone assumed it was a bomb. Uh, I, you know, I assumed there must have been a massive car bomb right outside my flat. The explosion killed over 200 people, but the damage to the city centre, its hospitals, infrastructure, and tens of thousands of homes has left an incalculable cost to the city's already collapsing economy. But what surprised residents of Beirut was the total lack of response from the authorities. You come from a sort of tradition in most parts of the world, certainly in China, where something like this happens, you know, the full forces of bureaucracy come down and create a plan to, you know, clear the streets of rubble, make a fund for rebuilding. Uh, But there was none of that, you know, and, uh, you know, the army weren't sent in to help out. Um, There was the most baffling thing for everybody uh, was... Yeah, the army was sent to patrol the streets to stop looting, but not to help anybody out. So, and there wasn't very little looting. There was no looting, really. So, you know, all these volunteers, they were, it, was very, it was kind of quite touching that people came from all over Lebanon, from, the, from Tripoli, from the hills, from the south. Um, even, and it's a very Christian neighborhood was right at the center of this, but you had Shia and Sunni and everyone came and helped and with, with brushes and shovels and, you know, people literally, you know, walking into, you know, my flat saying, you know, do you need me to help me clear up, you know, and sort of like some university students who say, well, you know, there are people who need help more than me, you know, so, um, uh, and then out on the streets, there were just policemen sitting on their, sitting on their guns, sitting around watching. And you think this is kind of, kind of not what you expect. And, of course, there was no money, so there was no money for reconstruction. Thousands of people have taken to the streets of the Lebanese capital, Beirut, in anger at the country's leaders after this week's devastating explosion in the port area of the city. There is civil society, that they were the ones showing up. They were sweeping the streets. They're the ones who are fixing the windows, repairing homes, taking care of the elderly, donations, food, hygiene, shelter, everything, civil society. Civil society behaving like it's the state because the state is not functional, the state is not there. And that was a dramatic experience as well. And I think Lebanon has trained itself well for this. It's been decades of state erosion and state malfunction. So civil society is quite quite healthy in Lebanon. But in a way, it's doing a job that it shouldn't, which is maintenance and and fixing infrastructure and 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 the like so uh, i think civil society uh, did a fantastic job when it comes to local politicians i think up until now they haven't been able to really show up and and show their face here i mean it's uh, a deeply unpopular political class at the moment and rightly so The October 2019 protests took place for many reasons, but the increasingly obvious financial crisis was high among them. Huge spending and very low tax income meant the government was forced to make extensive cuts to services. These cuts led to the protests that toppled the government. So when a relatively small $1.2 billion eurobond loan came up for repayment, the interim government had to pick between paying the loan back or making the same cuts that had just toppled the government. They defaulted on the loan. Confidence in the Lebanese economy crashed. All other loans froze. The banks panicked and a currency crisis ensued. The Lebanese lira, 
that had been pegged at 1,500 lira to the US dollar since 1991 was suddenly starting to slip. At the beginning of it, uh, it was just a fraction more. So instead of 1,500, um, you would go to like a local exchange shop and he'd ask you for 1,530 liras if you want to buy the dollar. 1,530, 1,550. And when it hit around 1,560 is when, uh, it was when people noticed and started taking advantage of banks and their withdrawal limit to uh, arbitrage this price. So they would withdraw from the bank what they're allowed, go immediately exchange it in, the, uh, in, an, in a local exchange shop and give it back to the bank. This is 28-year-old Moshin Alamin, who works for a media company in Beirut. He explains that when the central bank recognised a black market currency rate was emerging, it started to install capital controls. And then we had a revolution, uh, some kind of uprising that started in October. During that, it was a bit, uh, a bit. There was a, a few riots in the city, and the banks closed under the pretense of um, of, of this. And when they went back, and they, when they opened back, it was the mess was fully uh, realized. When banks reopened. They kept the official exchange rate of 1,500 lira to the dollar, but the black market exchange rate was soaring. 3,000, 5,000, 7,000. Today, it stands at around 8,800 lira to the dollar. For 28 years, Lebanese have been living uh, oblivious to any kind of um, economic knowledge at all. Like They don't understand... Um, uh, changing value of uh, currencies because we've been pegged to the dollar and uh, since everyone enjoys that uh, nobody questioned it and it sort of became the norm until one day we ha- we got I guess uh, over leveraged and we could no longer support uh, uh, we could no longer support the peg because we used to have reserves that would offset uh, the uh, inflows and outflows to the country like we used to spend, let's say, $20 billion, and we used to get $10 billion a year. And we, the, the, uh, the central bank would use people's bank reserves and uh, use them for foreign exchange and to maintain the peg. Lebanon, as a country, we produce nothing. We literally produce nothing. Like we don't, the 28 years of having a constant peg disincentivized uh, agriculture, disincentivized manufacture, disincentivized all kinds of uh, production. We were a service-based uh, country and most of the people were counting on remittances. The economy was already in bad shape. Uh, immigration had been growing and growing and growing. So as well, as well in the past 20 years, the, the, the biggest growing sector was the public sector. And the politicians were, they kept growing the public sector more and more. And because they fight with each other, they would always settle fights by growing their own uh, share of the public sector. Lebanon's financial crisis is being described as the world's biggest Ponzi scheme, 
Richard explains that Said Hariri, the Prime Minister who was in power until the 2019 collapse, oversaw the central bank governors and ultimately what he describes as two Ponzi schemes. One was the, the classic Ponzi scheme of a government that overspent. I mean, it, it, the government wasn't getting the tax revenues because uh, it couldn't enforce tax legislation to, to, to pay for its government spending. So eventually, I think the uh, debt to GDP ratio arose to about 150, 160%, which is the third highest in the world of any sort of significant economy. So that was a, that's a kind of standard Ponzi scheme. It's not That's not really a Ponzi scheme. The actual... Ponzi scheme what was the central bank Ponzi scheme. So the central bank had stabilized the currency uh, after the, the war when all this investment money was coming in. It, it, you know, it did what a lot of countries do in that situation, which was have a fixed exchange rate so that investors knew that if they put money in, they'd get the same the money out of the same value. You put your you put your dollars or your Gulf Rials into the economy, and you can always get it out at the same rate. So you, you know you know where you are, and that encourages investors. However, of course, you know if debt levels rise according to the market, then the currency should sink. That's kind of how basic economics work. And uh, in the case of Lebanon, it wasn't exporting as much as it was importing. It was importing money. It was importing goods to pay for reconstruction. It was then importing luxury goods because Lebanese middle classes are used to a certain sort of quality of life. And if you have a fixed exchange rate, you're subsidizing imports, you know, and the, the, uh, the exchange rate is kept by the, by, the, um, by the central bank, you know, buying lira, buying Lebanese currency with dollars at the fixed rate and overpaying. So where does the, where does the central bank get that money from to overpay well it takes the central bank takes loans from the private banks which is the opposite of how it's supposed to work right so the central bank is supposed to be the lender of last resort to the banking system to the private banking system to keep that stable in lebanon this system meant it went the other way around and the, the private banks were lending money to the central bank and of course you know it wanted an interest rate out of that and the more, of course, that exchange rate looks unbalanced, the more people think at some point this is going to be devalued. I'm not going to get my dollars back at the same rate, my money back at the same rate to the dollar. So I want a bigger interest rate. So the interest rates to the private banks kept going up and up and up. So, of course, you know, that was good for those private banks and their customers, you know, particularly the wealthy who were being given massive rates of interest on their, um, on their bank deposits. Interest rates around the world are at historic lows. I'm paying like 1% interest on my mortgage. If you if you have a deposit in your bank account, you're lucky to get any interest at all, 0.1%, 0.2%. In Lebanon, people were getting 15% on their bank deposits and going up. And of course, that would, that is your classic Ponzi scheme in the sense that everyone, the only reason that's going up is because everyone knows it's not sustainable. Everyone knows there isn't the money there to actually pay it back, which is why you have to get these high interest rates. So at some point it was going to blow up. And what triggered the end of the Ponzi scheme was the government defaulting on a very small debt, a Eurobond debt in March last year. But that suddenly took the confidence out. Everyone wanted to pull their money out of the banking system, classic run on the bank. The banking system shut down. The government said, don't, you know, you can't withdraw dollars from the, from the bank anymore. And so suddenly 
you know, people have effectively lost huge amounts of money as the banks have effectively defaulted. I mean, it hasn't been described as a default because it's just a temporary restriction, but no one thinks they're going to get their money back. So that's why it's a Ponzi scheme. People are putting money into a system for short-term gains, knowing that at the end of the day, the money wasn't there anymore. The banks controlled not only the amount of money you could withdraw, but the exchange rate too. Whilst the black market, or free market, exchange rate rose to over 8,500 lira to the dollar, the banks were still only giving 1,500. You know, when you have your money in, in the bank, which you can only get out at one, you know, 1,500 if at all, then that's a currency control. That's simply a currency control imposed by the government, or it's a, or it's a haircut. It's effectively a haircut. It's a, it's a state-mandated bank default against my deposit. Uh, because you should be beginning with that money at 8,500, which is the black market rate, but they're only giving you at 1,500. So they're basically saying you've lost three quarters of your money. That's a deposit haircut. The bank has defaulted, and that's, that's in financial terms a default. Um, there's, there's no way back from that. The, the inequality, which was great anyway, has absolutely ramped up. The, the, the official poverty rate, according to the World Bank standard, went up in six months. It went up from 23% to 55% which is a sort of a massive increase and it's now heading up towards 70%, you know, so so there is huge poverty. The middle classes were hit as badly in proportional terms to their income as the, as the poor because the, you know, the middle classes were used to having a lifestyle that involved being paid in lira. You know, if you had a government, good, well-paid government job being paid in lira that was exchangeable to dollars, you could afford your holiday in France every year if you wanted, or you could afford your, you know, nice imported car. Um, suddenly that's all gone out the window because because your your lira is worth, you know, a quarter of what it was. There is an elite who haven't been affected, absolutely, because there's the, the elite who are, you know, engaged in international trade or have families living abroad. Of course, they're getting their dollars and they they're able to get the dollars brought into the country and to change them at the black market rate. So they're, they're, they're doing fine. The capital controls imposed by the banks caused the black market to emerge and the currency started soaring. People panicked. Here's the thing. At this point, pretty much everyone had no idea of why this happened. Nobody, nobody talked about money or economics or... Nobody thought anything. The, the only thing that people were concerned about is that if you have your savings in dollars in the bank, then you're safe. If you have your savings in lira, there's this apocalyptic scenario in which the lira would devaluate. But nobody foresaw that the banks would take people's dollars. After the collapse, everyone started to uh, learn, understand, and figure things out, and that's basically what led me and a lot, a lot, a lot of people into Bitcoin and uh, and other things. The younger generation uh, understand that uh, the the our our political elites and and the bankers here are are really going to run this country into the ground. So we had that uh, clear pessimism of no, this this lira is continue is going to continue to devaluate. Like in Venezuela, like in Iran, like in etc., et it's gonna keep doing that. So first of all, I had some savings in the bank, and I started withdrawing them with, within the limits that I was allowed. I withdrew my money, I exchanged it two dollars, and then I helped my parents do the same. 
because I I had to convince them. I really had to convince them that this is not going to go go well. After we all had our money, we saved our money, we put it in dollars, we put it in the in, in our homes. We started looking into, okay, well, I guess we need to buy safes now. And then the COVID happened. When COVID happened, we started listening to the news and we started looking at these prices, at these stocks, at what's going on. Like, wow, uh, oil is going down to minus $30. Uh, all stocks are tanking to my, uh, half or three quarters of what they were. And at, at that point, uh, we had a failed banking system. We couldn't enter the market. We, we can't buy any international stocks or any anything, any international commodities because we do not have a banking system. That's, that's when we start, started thinking that uh, uh, there's something I need here. There's, there's something we need. This is, a, this is a huge problem. Telegram and WhatsApp groups were sharing tips on investment and what to do with any salvaged money. And Moshin came across a group member who was posting about Bitcoin. I uh, I tested I tested uh, out buying some buying some Bitcoin saw it uh, saw it increase and then I read more I read more I started listening to the podcast and then I was just obsessed with it like I was listening to every single podcast all the books all the YouTube videos everything it's been like my life for six months and now I'm preaching Bitcoin to everyone now uh, in the past month I've 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 onboarded the, both my brothers, my parents. I talk about it in family gatherings. Everyone's doing it now. Like it, we're, we're getting super, super, uh, it's getting super huge in Lebanon. And I think <clears throat> this year is going to be uh, very big. And I, I think this is globally, but it, it solves all the problems. In Beirut, the bank's capital controls means you can't buy Bitcoin on an exchange, even with a much-coveted, unrestricted international Lebanese bank card. So Morshen and others created a peer-to-peer market group. There are a number of traders who, who, um, who have access, I guess, to foreign accounts or they have foreign suppliers, and they, they can get, bring in tens, even hundreds of thousands of uh, dollars worth of uh, Bitcoin, and they just run around in their cars and they uh, go to go go to your house, and you uh, you give them you give them money, and they send you they they send you the uh, the crypto through an exchange. They do it through an exchange because it's uh, immediate. Yeah, and then and then you take it to, to your wallet. So. The amount of the, the, the volume of trading on this small group peer to peer is tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like it's it's very easy to to buy ten fifty. I, I can just now uh, sell fifty or buy fifty thousand dollars. And there's they they ask for a fee, of course, and it changes. Sometimes it's three uh, percent fee sometimes it's one percent fee sometimes somebody wants to really somebody sometimes someone wants uh, quick liquidity they would sell ten twenty thousand for zero fees and other traders would arbitrage that one of those traders is Saeed Abu Kurub. 
He spoke to me from Beirut, where his internet connection was a little patchy. This is how it works. Uh, people, they use uh, social media groups, mainly Telegram we use. And there are two groups, big groups in Lebanon. They are named the BTC Marketplace. BTC refers to Bitcoin. And another one called Atomic Swap Marketplace. So people like buyers, they post in these groups that they want to buy $5,000 worth of Bitcoins. Uh, the buyer and uh, the sellers started contacted them privately, offering them the, the rates. So usually like they have like a commission rate. Uh, once the agreement happens, they agree on, uh, on a meeting point. Usually happens in public spaces such as cafe, coffee shops. They do the transaction, transferring the Bitcoin to the buyer's wallet. And uh, the seller uh, got uh, his or her money. And that's it. Saeed first learned about Bitcoin back in 2009 from his economics professor. But it wasn't until 2017 that he started investing in cryptocurrencies whilst living in Jordan. Because the banking system in Lebanon is failing and there is devaluation of the Lebanese currency, so many people, they liquidated or they uh, withdrew their money from the banks and starting buy, started buying Bitcoin just because, because the Lebanese currency was de- devaluated. His clients, he says, are of all ages and backgrounds, including even employees of the Ministry of Finance. They too have given up hope on Lebanon's financial system. One of the largest transactions Syed made was the purchase of $150,000 worth of Bitcoin for a man who sold his land in Lebanon to move to the United States. According to Said, he's now living off the proceeds of not just the land sale, but the profits from Bitcoin, which has more than doubled since that transaction. In quiet corners of supermarkets, he meets clients daily, and each transaction is, on average, about $2,000, he tells me. But not all of his clients are trying to safeguard their dollars. Many clients are using Bitcoin to bring much-needed dollars into the country. Some of them, uh, most of the people like who liquidates uh, Bitcoin, mainly they are transfers from outside Lebanon to Lebanon. So this is how it happens. Mainly it's transfers from Africa, from people, uh, Lebanese living in Africa or Lebanese living in Dubai. And they want to liquidate Bitcoin and uh, cash them out. The Lebanese diaspora find Bitcoin is one of the few ways to guarantee money from overseas won't be devalued by the country's failing banking system. For Saeed, and many others like him, transferring dollars to Bitcoin has enabled their financial survival in a time where many have lost over 80% of their life savings. My wife, she has, uh, actually she was having a deposit uh, in the Lebanese currency, Lebanese lira. Like if it was like the normal rate, it used to be like $7,000, but it lost its rate to mainly $1,000. So wow. I told her at that time, like that was in March 2020, I told her it's the good idea is to buy Bitcoin. And at that time, it was $3,800 in wow. March 2020. Yes. So, yeah. So <laughs> she told me that's, that's how, how you saved your life for, for the coming two years. Saeed has said that the number of people in his three different Telegram groups has grown from around 200 to now 950 people 
as inflation continues to rise and a lack of alternative methods of moving or safeguarding savings causes alarm among the wider Lebanese population. But sadly, the security issue in Beirut is also worsening. Ronnie tells me that petty crime has been on the rise. Theft, robbery, even murder has been commonplace as people become increasingly desperate. Among peers, among friends and family, it's a conversation that happens regularly, taking extra precautions all the time, which feels more and more like a war zone, except that there's no war per se. You don't have, there's no rockets, there's no you know bullets above us. But it feels, it feels like we're entering something that's, uh, that's very, uh, that, that's bad. And for me, the protests that were largely peaceful at the beginning of this movement since October 2019, they've, they've changed. And the last, uh, the last few days, Tripoli in the north, tonight is fairly calm, but you had the municipality burned, you had uh, the government palace sort of under attack, violence, there was a protester shot dead. So there's there's security at that level, meaning that there's been escalation. And the protest movement is not one person, it's not one body, it's many things at once. So there's that concern that this could spill out of control. And so far it hasn't. But that's, I think, a major concern. The following day, after speaking to Ronnie, things did spill out of control. The well-known Lebanese activist who openly goes after Hezbollah and its back at Iran has been found dead in his car. Lockman Slim was murdered, shot five times. I called Ronnie back to talk about the assassination. The most previous successful political assassination was against my father in late 2013. So he he was part of a long string of assassinations targeting political figures that were trying to find a political solution to Hezbollah's weapons in Lebanon. Ronnie's father was Mohammed Chata, the former finance minister who tried to find a peaceful resolution to end the growing sectarian tension. He was advocating direct state-to-state dialogue with Iran rather than through the proxy of Hezbollah. That was the last political uh, attempt serious attempt at finding a peaceful way out of this current mess that we're in. It didn't succeed. Um, My father was killed in a car bombing in downtown Beirut. And then there was a lull in in this string of assassinations. Targeted crimes seem to be part and parcel of modern Lebanese history and, and the current paralysis and the downward spiral that we're living through. Um, I think once you challenge effectively uh, their security apparatus in the country, whether that's through eloquence on TV and public opinion, or whether that's through actual sort of trying to penetrate the hijacking of these sensitive issues in the country, which largely revolve around sovereignty, I think that's the line. And when you get close to that line, you're under their radar. And if you cross it, I think you, my assumption is you get killed. This recent resurgence in violence and growing confidence of Hezbollah in a best-case scenario could lead to the collapse of the country. In the worst case, a return to civil war. We've seen Lebanon crash in, in recent months. And we're now, unfortunately, back into an era where there's serious intimidation 
a serious intimidation by default when you kill a Hezbollah critic. Anyone who wants to speak against Hezbollah thinks twice, maybe thinks three times or four times before challenging them. I think there's a collective trauma, and I don't like to use this word loosely because I think sometimes the word is tossed around for the most minuscule of things, but I think this is real trauma. I think uh, it's, it's a population that has seen and experienced too much suffering, and there's, an, there's a sense of inability to change. Something about the way Lebanon is governed, it is an, it's an old model, it doesn't work, at least in its current construct, it, it, it's failing. Um, and you have a protest movement that is perhaps betting on the future, betting on elections, whether they impact the situation or not. There's a lot of passion for the youth, the, the younger generation that really defined the last protest movement, October 2019 in particular. It was a youth-led moment that maybe they're not going to have any memory of the civil war and therefore they can test the waters and keep pushing and pushing and pushing but that's really hope it's left there i think people are suffering and they're 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 angry but i think anger is manageable this is more than anger this is um watching your surroundings fall and watching the country perhaps perhaps collapse and countries don't really they don't die Lebanon will never die. There will always be something called Lebanon. Its borders are intact. But the what you would what you would expect from a country is no longer there. This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles, and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. I'd like to thank Richard Spencer, who did an excellent job of explaining the political and economic situation of Lebanon to me, and patiently answering all of my questions. I'd also like to thank Morsen and Said, who've shared their story of the growing Bitcoin market in Beirut, and to Ronnie Chattar, whose excellent insights into life in Lebanon can be heard regularly on his podcast, The Beirut Banyan. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I'm Tom Pattinson. Head over to defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films.